You're listening to Mike and Kristen. The podcast. I'm Mike, a musician, writer, and producer. And I'm Kristen, a painter, writer, and designer. Our show is all about following dreams, taking chances, and what life as an artist is really about. Together, we bring you weekly guest interviews and thought-provoking conversations. Let's go! What an amazing episode we have today. How lucky are we to have the legendary... Nancy Regan. Nancy Regan. Grew up watching her on the news. I have to say, okay, I like to make a point of telling people when others are saying nice things about them behind their back. (laughs) And everyone that we've talked to that we've said, like, guys, we interviewed Nancy Regan. Everyone across the board has been like, she's so cool. I love her. Like, she's very much loved she's universally loved and respected yeah most definitely yeah and and after our time with her you can completely see why like i want her to be our new roommate basically well we'll try to invite her over as, as often as we can <laughs> as often as she wants to come you know okay. we, we want we have her. boundaries we'll respect yeah. nancy's boundaries and yeah she's got a new book out she gets into all that uh yeah great great chat our th- longest one yet too well worth it yeah. She's just so honest and herself. And I, I find being around people like that allows you to tap into that part of yourself as well. Yeah. When, when someone's that positive and open and willing to talk about things, you just, you get there yourself. Yeah, exactly. She has a ton of wisdom to share. She's funny. She's lighthearted. And she gets into her book that I think we can all see ourselves in. So this will be an episode that, yeah, you can relate to. And uh, off the bat, she named the line in the studio. I cut that part out just because we, we were rambling on. But uh, <laughs> the, the studio, we have a, I have a line. Not a mascot. A mac- it's a, it's a what, do you, what do you call it? A uh, Not a puppet, but a... It's like a stuffed head not yeah. taxidermy not, it's not a real lion head is what right. i was trying to say right. it's stuffed like animal. just a stuffed animal head of a <laughs> lion on the wall and she realized it didn't have a name when we have named every single thing in our life as a name mm-hmm. and for some reason that didn't and now it is lawrence or larry he's been finally given an identity proper name thanks to nancy but uh, yeah, let's get it in the chat. It's amazing. Uh, listen, just yeah, you're gonna you're gonna love it. Oh, well, when I see you doing that, do you want me to provide the music, the limbo music? I would love that, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Maracas. Yeah. There's some percussion instruments beside <laughs> you there, actually. Quite a few, yeah. <laughs> Drum roll, please. That's what people will know I'm taking a little time out. <laughs> a little pee break, drum solo. Yeah, that's oh, happened a couple times. Are. Don't you think it's dangerous to have these within reach of your... <laughs> no, <laughs> Am only, I killing your ears Only now? when no. we have children over, Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> I, you've got a child over right now. <laughs> no other guest has grabbed for them yet. Really? That just says to me that people aren't in touch with their inner child. And my whole book was about getting back to mm. 
who I was when I was eight or seven. We had a guest yesterday that we interviewed, and she does expressive art therapy. And one of her modules is tapping into the inner child, which she talks about it being part of your subconscious and how so many of the aspects and identity of who we are as grownups, of course, stems from this. And I, one of the points she made that I loved, and I've heard this talked about in other ways, but we have these moments or highlights in our life that we just kind of glaze over like, oh, okay, that happened. I graduated high school. And you're so fixated on moving forward mm-hmm. that you forget to give real acknowledgement to these moments and how the child in you would be like, whoa, but but Kristen, you you got a house or you got right. married or whatever the thing might be, big right. or small. And I loved that she just kind of shone a light on that. So for me, that is all about presence. Because when we're kids, we're present. And I, you know, as I pull up into your yard here and I'm thinking, you guys have it all figured out. You're out in nature. You're a quick drive from the city. Anyone in Toronto who would come here and visit would go, what? Mm. You've got this that close to downtown? Um, But I really think that as adults, as you say, we don't stop to drink it in because we're always thinking about the next thing. We're living in the future or we're living in the past with our regret. And I, I am committing at my age now to go back and live more like I did as a kid. And, you know, the hardest thing to, the hardest area in which to do that is parenting. I bet. Mm. Because, ugh, Though patterns. you would, I, I mean, we're not parents, so I'm reluctant to give too much. George the cat. Yeah, we have George the cat. So we see and his Larry evolution. the lion. Larry yeah, the lion. Up on yeah. the wall, newly Just dubbed. Christian's name. Pretty much Cinderella here with all the animals that are around us. But <laughs> Are there little birds? Oh, look, a little bird. <laughs> tweet, tweet, tweet. <laughs> but you must see in your kids, or I, I should say, do you see in your kids that part of yourself as a child? Because it's like living like, oh, OK, I remember what it was like to be seven and having that experience. Or is that just forgotten? I remember feeling that my kids are older now because my boys are in their 20s and my daughter is a teenager. And so I see it less for sure. But I think of, when you ask that question, I think of going to Disney World, actually, Mm. and feeling the license to really experience it like a kid because I was with young kids. Mm. And there's something there. Like, you know, we really have to learn from them and say, yeah, why aren't we experiencing every day? Why are we zipping through every day instead of just going out and walking in the woods? And I am really guilty of that. And that's why for me, it, it, when I use the word practice, I mean it because it's, it's a constant practice of reminding myself to come back to the present moment because I don't usually live there. I feel as adults now, we're just always trying to achieve the next thing. We're working on ourselves or we're working to please other people. And i f- you forget the whole concept of just playing and just, well, just play in general. Like mm-hmm. I, I've, I feel like I am most present and most at ease when I can just totally zone into the moment and just have fun. And what are, what are ways you've found to do things like that? Well, actually, because I've been 
asking other people questions most of my life. First, I'm going to ask you, <laughs> yeah. picking up on that, is your sense of play, that pure play, found most in music? Definitely to a point. Uh, it was more so when I first started to play and it didn't, wasn't my profession. <laughs> so when I was just playing guitar and learning songs and like there was just kind of a a joy that came from that. And now that it's my profession, I still love it and I still, it's what I want to do and what, what I really enjoy. But there's an aspect that's taken away when you realize that what I create has to pay our oil bill. <laughs> Actually, we don't have oil. That was a bad analogy. <laughs> our heat in general, our heat pump bill. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, yeah, there's a little, your minds, your mindset just shifts a little bit when you have to survive off that. And you, you, I can't approach it or maybe I think I can't, and maybe I should be approaching it with just a more playful aspect. And maybe that's where all my, growth and success will come from but it's just <laughs> always in the back of my head a little bit like oh I, I can't just go have fun i have to think about the outcome of this yeah liz gilbert talked about that in her book big magic yeah. and she's on my mind because as soon as we settled down into this couch this fabulous cozy spot and put our feet up and put blankets on i thought about interviewing her for my podcast, The Soul Booth, in New York. And we were in a, a borrowed flat that was lovely, a friend of mine owns. And um, she was just instantly comfortable and ready to chat. But yeah. one of the things she talks about around creativity is that so many people would say to her, particularly after her phenomenal success of Eat, Pray, Love, they would say, oh, you know, I just need to quit my day job and really throw myself into it and be an artist, even if I'm a starving artist. And they would expect her to say, yeah, you go. And she'd say, mm, no, I don't think that I don't think that's the best idea, yeah. because I think then you put so much pressure on your art to pay the bills, as you say. And maybe you do something that you find a little boring that pays the bills and then in your after hours you can really play and enjoy your art for your art's sake and maybe then it grows to be what it is for you now a profession and then the trick is okay how do i go back and find that sense <laughs> yeah. of yeah and there's still like there's different ways to find joy like playing a live show that's when it kind of all comes <laughs> out like I've practiced the thousands of hours. I've written the songs. I've done all these things. And now I'm on stage and I'm just entertaining. And that's that's different than the creative process for me. Like this is this is the outlet. And this allows me to just kind of I, I play at that point. Mm -hmm. Like I, I get to just be who I am, I think. You've done all the preparation. Yeah. The and hard, you can just have fun. The hard work has been done and yeah, you still have to be aware of what you're doing and make sure you're 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 playing the songs right, singing the right words and just doing the the part, but at the end of the day, like I close my eyes a lot when I play and I think it's just I get into it and I just I'm not just focusing on everything around me, I'm just being me in the zone. In the zone. Have you guys seen the movie um, 
Soul. It's a yes. Pixar movie. Yeah, it, it was is great. great. Oh, and it and it shows. It says that's where musicians are when they're really in you know in the zone or athletes, yeah. whatever. There's this part of heaven where they are <laughs> yeah. because they're just so fully present and yeah. in it. Yeah, that was and we really resonated with that film, especially Mike oh, being a musician. Yes. Like you really got the that message. But what a beautiful way to teach kids this lesson or, or way of thinking like let's, let's just think about this or introduce this idea and there is more of that awareness I think nowadays mm-hmm. thankfully for us we we feel like you know both through observation of our parents and generations before there's there's something different happening now and that's not to say that we live in this euphoric idealistic world but there's at least a little bit of openness uh practice there's conversation around these ways of thinking and things like play like oh we get, not only do we get to do that now it's actually encouraged now mm-hmm. whereas our parents generations and those before was like no no you get a job and you do that and for 45 years mm-hmm. and then you die <laughs> it was basically yeah. how it looked like our life was would unfold and busyness was revered and and it still is for a lot of people yeah. But yeah. I, I caught myself um, when my daughter was young, I realized that people would say, oh, what are you doing these days? And I was doing a smattering of different things. And I had, you know, long been known as the person on TV. And I realized that whenever anyone asked me what I was doing, I was sort of trying to tell them all these little things I was doing. And I caught myself and I was like, hmm, what is that about? And I challenged myself to say to the next person, well, I'm really, you know, mostly just focusing on parenting and my young daughter and uh, doing a little work on the side. And it was like I had to kind of unglue that from my mouth to spit it out because it because it went against that idea that being successful means being busy. That's part of what I meant when I drove up to your house and I thought you guys have it figured out you've got your workspace right here you're in this beautiful natural setting and there's opportunity to play all around you and you're both playing in your work well I want to ask you though Kristen where does play really live for you play for me is actually very separate from anything that feels work like Mm. and it's something we still struggle to create space for. Part of it is, especially being a new full-time entrepreneur, I feel a little bit more of that pressure or dare I say guilt about not being productive. So I'm aware that I want to be behaving in a certain way, but still working on that being natural for me. But when you mentioned Disney, it reminded me of a day that I met my brother and wife and two kids, my niece and nephew in Disney a few years ago. And we were at the Anaheim location and I had flown down and we had two days together and the kids were at that ripe age where oh. Disney was magic. I don't know if that ever goes away. Like the I'm 40 spot. and I'm still like, yeah. take me to Disney. But <laughs> I had this very unique experience of my brother, Tim, is a Disney fanatic and he knows the park inside out. He had everything planned. He had their uh, restaurant reservations booked and I got to be a kid that day. And as a middle-aged woman getting drug around Disney and like, do you want ice cream? Yeah, yeah. Like I was a child (laughs) from start to finish. It was one of the greatest days of my life because I didn't have to plan anything. I was not in charge of 
logistics or directions, any of these things that could at all interfere with my experience. It was just laughter and food and fun. And, you know, that's not to say it has to be such an elaborate experience to Mm -hmm. play. Right. But just that it was so separate from my life, I think I was able to really embrace it. But I, I also, and I'm talking a lot here, but I had a home massage the other night. So my RMT drove to my house and gave me an incredible treatment in my living room. And I thought to myself after, this is how you stay present. Like find an experience that you enjoy and savor so much that where else would you rather be? Right. And like that to me was a good way to try to practice that skill. And getting out of the guilt so that you can indulge in self-care, which really just serves your art and your soul. Exactly. I I realize when you were talking about Disney this time that my favorite family memories from when I was a kid were times when we were away, you know, like in Prince Edward Island at um, Rainbow Valley and uh, on ski trips. And when I delve into that, I realize that's because my parents were present. Of course. And they were present in a sense of play. And so, you know, that was really the richest family time I can think of. So that should be a lesson to all of us. And yet, I have to remind myself of this all the time because the guilt overrides the desire to play and says, oh, I'm not being productive enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was writing my book, I, would, um, I did most of it at my cottage, and that's just where it wanted to come out. And when I had tried to write in the city, it was like, mm, I was trying to force it. But whenever I'd go on a little writing retreat— I'd get there and the first day would I'd think, oh, I'm just going to jump right in. It's going to be so great. Uh Uh-uh. I would waste the first day for sure. Maybe the first two days. And then once I was like acclimatized to that calm space, as opposed to the city and the busyness, then on the third morning, I could wake up and go, okay, yeah, now I'm ready. But that says something about that state of fren- freneticism, is that a word? That frenetic state that we're living in, um, in our busy world. And and I'm I'm really feeling conflicted and guilty about this right now, but I'm t- tempted to shut the news off. I, I worked in news for a long time, mm-hmm. but I'm avoiding the news right now because it's it's all too much. You know, it's from from Ukraine and the tragedy, and I'm I'm an empath, so I feel everybody's pain. If I'm not careful, you know, I can be like a big wet sponge. sponge. Yeah. And from Ukraine to the new COVID variants to uh, you know terrorism to the states, the <laughs> the situation in the states, and it goes on and on. And climate change. Hello, how could I not put mm. that up front? And so. I do feel as a responsible citizen on the planet, I feel some guilt about turning away from the news right now, but I also know that that's self-preservation in a way, and I'm going to I'm going to help the world in whatever ways I can. I'm going to contribute because that's my whole ethos now. But I can't do it if I'm in fear 
and overwhelmed. I'm so glad you brought this up because it's something I wanted to ask of you, your consumption of modern media, and if you mm. noticed a shift in how news was delivered. So, you know, us growing up, growing up, you don't maybe have that analytical way of thinking about the news. It's just taken as fact. Uh, but now you were well aware that, OK, there's strategy here. And I just wanted to ask your thoughts on like, is there too much of that strategic element or what's the what's the vibe of the news these days? And I mean, if you're saying I'm kind of stepping away from it and we do, too, we don't even have cable or television, really we watch movies. But for that very reason, like I can't fill my brain with this. No. Yeah. And and especially before bed, my husband loves to listen to the or watch the news before bed. And I'm like, OK, no, no more of that. Not for me. You've got to do it. You've got to, you know, go elsewhere and watch it into another room. Um, so I think news has changed a lot. I think that there's been the commercialization of news. I think that there um, a lot of a lot of news feels bought these days. Not all. But uh, I think that the fact that so many of us are getting news from social media has made news outlets, the conventional news outlets, have to shift in a way. And as they lose viewers, they have to look for new avenues of revenue and that sort of thing. And newspapers are going the way of the dodo. Um, I think that's tragic in some ways because we're not seeing investigative journalism anymore. And uh, these days it's more, you know, PR kind of journalism story. There's a story and, oh, that's a good story. That'll be entertaining for people. And and maybe, you know, that's just what it is. I don't spend too much time thinking about it, mm -hmm. but I also don't watch the news very much. So mm -hmm. that's my deep, dark secret. Do you feel that your book, congratulations on the release of your new book that is out now Thanks, to the world. Um, do you feel like part of writing that was to kind of counter what's happening in media now? Like you're, you're an empath, you said, and I feel like you're someone who wants to just share good with the world and help. And, and your book is something that is a positive message and trying to let people be themselves. Do you feel that just put, putting that out there is something that can, can benefit the, the world? Yeah, I think of it in terms of darkness and light. And part of the reason that I started um, this podcast, The Soul Booth, which is currently on hiatus because I had to shut it down when I was um, in the lockdown, partly because my sponsors were, partly because I was locked in fear at first mm -hmm. and and had too much going on emotionally, um, but also because my sponsors were a restaurant and a gym, et cetera, mm -hmm. and they were locked down. So I thought, okay, this is the time I'm going to take to write. I'm going to try to write a book and I need to focus on that. So I put it on hiatus. But when I started the Soul Booth, it was when Donald Trump had just won the U.S. election. And I just was overwhelmed by how much darkness I saw in the world. Because while we can talk about the positivity we see around us, you know, you're talking about 
Kristen, you're talking about seeing the shift and so on. I see that too. I see so many people doing good things and and expanding their minds and their their spirits and and really focusing on making the world a better place. But that's in an ideological bubble. And there are other ideological bubbles out there that, you know, we're confronted with when we watch the news and it's like, wow, they're they're living on a different planet and they're living in a completely different headspace. So I I felt like there's so much darkness, and yet I see so many people like you two who are full of light. And I was having conversations that were inspiring and expansive. And I thought, okay, you know, Nance, you've you've got this long background in television. You should be doing something with that to make the world brighter right now. Mm-hmm. So shining a light in the darkness. And taking people like Mike and Kristen and amplifying their voices by sharing them with other people. So that was my idea. And and it was a joyful, joyful thing to do. And I have all those, actually, I have um, a bunch of video versions because I started it originally as a video podcast and just doing it on my own. No sponsor, no, you know, I was shooting it by myself. And then these two angels who are, um, twins, uh, Megan and Marie from Mirror Image Media, mm-hmm. uh, sort of floated down into my world, and they started videotaping for me, and we were all just having fun. But my book, basically, coming circuitously back to your question, Mike, um, yeah. comes to that conclusion that what we're here for is to contribute, and it took me, as it takes many people, a long time to get out of my own way in order to figure that out. And so the the title of my book is From Showing Off to Showing Up, An Imposter's Journey from Perfect to Presence. And it makes, I think it makes a lot of people sort of go, huh, what's that about? And that was okay with me. I, I like the idea that it would make people curious mm-hmm. as long as it would mean that they would then pick up the book and read the back or inside cover. But for me, showing off is living your life according to other people's expectations, uh, looking for praise, good judgment, uh, to be you know highly held in other people's regard. And showing up is, here I am. This is me. And I don't change myself according to who the audience is. I just have to show up and be present as the the authentic person I am. And that means taking off the mask that we wear in the world that shows everybody that everything's great. <laughs> and I, you know, I was literally projecting an air of confidence um, through television. And I started at a young age and I was, uh, I look at it now and I think, of course, it was a total setup for imposter syndrome because I was 22 when I started as the co-host on the, the, the most watched news show east of Montreal. And I was surrounded by people who had experience and who had, you know, a background in journalism or broadcasting school. And I was fresh out of St. of X. So it was a fluky wonderful experience to get that job but then it's also set me up for some 
a, cri- a crisis of confidence because while I could act pretty well and I could convince people that I was very confident and an extrovert, uh, what was inside was an introvert who was spiraling and who had an inner critic that was constantly nattering away like, oh, you made another mistake. Oh, you you don't belong. To me. You don't belong here. How did you get this job? You don't deserve it. And that kind of uh, patter was just going in my head all the time. And I hid it from everyone. And I, when I say everyone, I mean my family, my husband, um, everyone. So it makes me emotional to say that. Yeah. So it's kind of amazing that I was willing to say it in this damn book, which goes out to the world. And that, to me, now is something I'm grateful for, that I was courageous enough to let my publisher talk me into this book, because this is not the book I pitched. I pitched a book that was about the fear of public speaking, Mm -hmm. and they convinced me. They wanted me to write more of a memoir, which was my relationship with fear, and I went into all of the reasons. Well, no, 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 I can't. I can't do that. I'm I'm setting myself up, you know, as a target. I'm not a psychologist. And they said, no, it's about you. And so I've had many people say to me, "Wow, you are so brave to speak that openly and vulnerably." Um, and I. While I was terrified the day it went to print because I felt like I lost control. And for a perfectionist who craves control, that's really hard. Um, I also, as soon as people started reading it, I, it was like um, letting air out of a, a you know, high-pressure thing. Like, yeah. because, mm-hmm. because I realized people kept coming back with the same kind of message. Like, oh my God, I never would have guessed you felt like that. I've felt like that my whole life. Yes. And you're telling my story. And all these messages said in different words, but meaning the same thing. And that's, guess what? This is the human experience. Some people might escape that whole pattern, and a lot of people wouldn't fall as deep into the hole as I did. But most people get it. People relate to vulnerability like that in any book, movie, anything that you're consuming that that does well it's always when someone is vulnerable and that's how we can relate to other people like everyone's going through something like no one is just escaping the troubles of life like we we all have something we're going through and when you are vulnerable in your book like that that allows people to hey i, I nancy regan feels like that i feel like that too this is this is normal yeah, it's so comforting. And, and the examples that you gave, like, there were moments I felt like I was reading about my own life and had a, it dawned on me like, yeah, I'm sure lots of people feel this way reading this book, but that's what makes it so powerful. And just appreciate someone putting putting it in that way, too. It's the way that you wrote it. And I also think that you being the author, the very fact that you wrote the book, whether you read a page of it or not, just the gesture of writing it, I think, is powerful to a lot of people. I want to ask about the fake it till you make it part of this story (laughs) in that this is actually advice that we are given, that this is an effective way to get what you want. So how do we kind of flip that on its head and think about it in a different way? Like, should we 
Because if if you're faking it and you are making it, it seems enticing to want to follow that lead. But it comes at a consequence, it would seem. Yeah, there's a consequence. It's it's not black and white. You know, I was faking it till I made it for a long time. And now I look back and that was part of my journey. So there are, I, there are, I was going to say there are very few, but I have to say there are no parts of my journey that I now regret. Even the really shitty stuff I know somehow led me to be who I am today. And it informed my learning here on this planet. And it was, you know, was it part of a plan? I don't know. But it it all makes me who I am today. Um, so I I don't judge that younger self anymore. I used to. Mm-hmm. And I used to have a hard time watching myself on TV. And now I kind of love going back and looking at those clips of me in my 20s because I realize that I I my light was shining. I just didn't feel it. Other people would see it and would react to it. But when other people would tell me I was fabulous, that would actually make me feel just more like an imposter because I knew I wasn't. Right. So the bigger deal they made. Anyway, so back to faking it till you make it. I think there's something to be said about using that to a degree. It's like sometimes you need to jumpstart a car. I don't know if this is a valid, I've never used it before, but I don't know if this is <laughs> valid. Yeah. But, but you know, if you know what it's like, Mike, when you have uh, uh, butterflies as a musician, you know, the famous um, example is that that exact same feeling, some people are going to interpret it as terror and others, like some famous musicians, have been quoted as saying, no, that exact same feeling, they read as excitement. Okay, I'm getting ready. This is good. I'm getting mm-hmm. pumped. And so how do we, how do we um, measure that for ourselves or how do we interpret it? I think that if you have a really hard time going into a cocktail party because you are uh, insecure or it makes you uncomfortable, you're an introvert, whatever— then, you know, there is a certain amount of fake it till you make it that you have to go in with and just sort of grin and bear it and mm-hmm. try to and try to break through that nervousness. But then I think you need to challenge yourself to move into once you get, you know, past that initial stage, then move into a more authentic space where you are having real conversations with people. And even the phrase cocktail party kind of gives me the, I don't know. We can all feel ourselves at a cocktail party right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the kind of cocktail party I want to be at. (laughs) Um, it's, It's, you know, I think the phrase for me brings about um, a derogatory meaning of that kind of facade of trying to impress everybody about, oh, yes, that my life is all together. And, oh, what are you doing? What are your kids doing? Oh, fabulous. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to be in that room. I When I go to a party, I want to go and I want to find a couch like this with someone like you and sit down and have a conversation like this. Yeah, I feel that, especially now. And having... Having especially, I mean, you would have spent a lifetime at that metaphorical cocktail party. (laughs) 
And so you would be oh, well practiced. I know how to do it. Yeah. And yeah. you you do learn and yeah. and similar to you and this was part of your book that I really felt so connected to in a unique way is I too grew up in a political family. So my father was not the premier. But my grandfather was our local MLA. Oh, interesting. Mm. And so I really resonated with your description of from a child not knowing any other life or knowing any different. We were groomed to behave, to look, to present ourselves in such a specific way that I I knew I was being guided, mm-hmm. but there were also consequences that if I broke those rules, like I remember one time showing up to a political dinner and I had taken markers and streaked my hair. <laughs> you know, this this was cool when you were in grade seven or eight or whatever it was. Revealing the artist to exactly. be. Exactly. <laughs> like I wanted to be Courtney Love or whatever phase I was in. And you walk in and everyone's in suits and ties, of course, and giving speeches. And I was sent to the dish pit to wash dishes all night. Like, I couldn't even eat dinner with my family because I had streaked my hair and that was just completely inappropriate for the granddaughter of the local politician to look this way. Was it liberal red, though? That's, if it that's was probably red, why I was in trouble. Yeah. It was blue streaks. Like, that was just a hard no. Just a yeah. hard no. So, yeah, I really... I, I, My heart felt for you in... I like just I know at least a little bit what it was like to be in the public eye in that specific critical way. Yeah. The way I put it uh, in the book, as you know, is I think all of us or most of us grew up with that sense uh, from our parents of, well, what will the neighbors think Yeah. when you step out of the line? What will the neighbors think? And in politics, everyone's your neighbor. Yeah. And so mm. that that even that phrase, you know, I remember when I when I thought of that phrase, I was walking on the beach and I was like, oh, my gosh, it comes down to that. Like so many of our lives are ruled by what will the neighbors think? How will we be judged? You know, how what are people are going to think of this? What are they going to say about me? What will the neighbors think? And when you can step away from that uh, fear of judgment and comparison, man, you liberate your life. And that's not to say that I have done so. I it is, I go back to that word practice. It's a practice. Mm-hmm. And I see it on social media. Like social media is all about approval, not approval, <laughs> approval, not approval. Mm-hmm. Um, and bandwagoning. You know, I I watch when something happens even if people don't really know all the circumstances around it, there can be a bandwagon effect on social media and it becomes this part kind of, um, I just need to cough for a sec, sorry. Yeah, take your time. <laughs> Mike and I usually sing Lay Down Sally if somebody Lay down needs Sally. a minute. So sing it. Okay. Lay down Sally, <laughs> rest me in your arms. I've been trying all night long just to talk to you. <laughs> so carry on. We just do those little intermissions oh if somebody gosh. needs a break. So yeah, there's okay. our lay down Sally. Well, now I feel badly for uh, coughing over that beautiful <laughs> lyric. No. <laughs> the first beautiful. time we ever did lay down Sally, I laughed for a solid five minutes. We have, so we a, have a six recording minute of it. video. Yeah. I was 
I just wanted to sing a harmony with someone and like, Christian, let's try this. So I'm like, I showed her what she had to sing and I was just going to sing a harmony on top of it. And you couldn't get through three words without dying laughing. <laughs> I'm not off. a good singer. She I'm can so shy. Sing. I cannot she, no, sing. No, you can I, harmonize. You're the first I person in the world. To say, he can harmonize. So I can just say whatever and he'll roll with it. But anyways, that's our intermission. If you yeah. need to take a break, we'll just sing, sing you through it. So. Okay, I'll sing a little Billy Joel for you guys if okay. you want. Please. You know, if you start to cough. Okay. okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sing us a song. You're the piano man. Yeah, that's as good as it gets. Uh, you could harmonize with that I'm, too. I I'm bet. ready. I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, we'll close out the episode when the time comes. <laughs> yeah, with nice song. Piano man. But, uh, I'm but a yes. singer. I think I was a singer in a previous life because I love to sing. But it's another area that what will the neighbors think comes into because I, as a perfectionist, don't ever want to hit a wrong note. So I, what do I? I don't sing in front of other people. And I have a son who's an accomplished singer, has a fantastic voice, uh, but he probably didn't help much because when he was a teenager and I would sing, he'd be like, ah, yeah, mom, you just went in three different keys or <laughs> a little out of tune. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. But I, but I, singing for me is play. Mm, it's joyful. Yeah. And when I'm by myself, if I'm in nature even, I will sing and I'll sing like, uh, how are things in Glockamora from this old uh, movie Finian's Rainbow <laughs> that Fred Astaire was in? <laughs> and and funny things like that that just kind of pop into my head and I'm by myself and I sing. And that is pure presence and pure play for me. You did theater. Did you did you not sing in that time of your life? The only the only time I sang on stage was for a fundraiser. It was actually the very first um, different stage of mind for the Mental Health Foundation of Nova Scotia. Yeah. And there were six, uh, quote unquote, prominent people from Halifax who were in this play about Elvis impersonators. And we were all Elvis impersonators. And so <laughs> at one point in the play, we each had to do our our little performance. And mine was... That's all right, mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, mama. Just anything you do. Anyway, it's pretty yes. solid. <laughs> solid, Nancy. I'm sure I was not in the right. In the, I'm sure I my did. tune was bad or whatever. Oh, yes. But but it was a big brave act for me, and it was just when I was about to leave Live at Five, which was another big bold move, and. Yeah, I look back and you can see, you know, in the timeline of your life where you showed courage and that singing on stage took a lot of courage for me, um, leaving the job that everyone th thought I was crazy to leave took a lot of courage, um, getting a divorce took a whole heap of courage, and yet now my former husband is one of my best friends. And so it was uh, it was the right thing to do, but also a very hard thing to do at the time. How important do you think it is to do new things that challenges that we're afraid of? Like I recently started uh, an improv class just for something to do. No reason, just other than I want to do something brand new that I've never done before and kind of challenge myself. 
and I've done two classes so far, so I'm very early on. But after the session, like two hours of just acting and doing little scenes with strangers, like I just feel really good. Mm. And I feel like those moments where you just put yourself out there are necessary. Do you think that when you're doing that, you are in pure presence? Yes, because I'm not great at it. So I have to just be in the, I have to really be in it to actually do it. Like I could, I could pick up guitar and just play it and not be present because I've done it for almost 30 years now. But when I'm doing that, like I have to focus in on the moment just to be able to be in the moment. That's one of the things I love about improv. And I haven't done it in years, but I love watching it. And I remember it really fondly because of that fact that you you can't be anywhere but here. You yeah. know, you know Ramdas said be here now. That was the title of his famous book and yeah. th- those three words are so simple, but we so rarely do them. Be here and now. Yeah. Uh that's a huge statement actually. But when you're doing improv, first of all you're totally present and second of all you can't stand in judgment of others because the whole theory behind improv is yes and. Yeah. So if you're my improv partner or, you know, the three of us are doing it together and you do something, we can't say no to it. We have to accept what you're doing and build on it. That is the main rule of improv. And I think that's kind of a lovely way to describe life when you can do life like that when you can say oh yeah i see what you're doing it's you know i could say in a judgmental way that's really weird what you're doing but instead i just look at it for what it is and i say and roll with it and say okay oh well how can i can contribute to this and how can i make it fun and yeah so i i love improv yeah it's and i have two classes left and then I don't know where I'll go with it. But I, I, I wanted to be something that's in my life just as something to do, just because of exactly what you're saying. Like you're in that moment, you become completely present. And I, I like finding things because I do so many things that have become our career. Like I'm a musician. Now I'm a writer. We do a podcast and <laughs> like, I enjoy all those things, but I love finding things where, okay, I don't have to be good at this. I can just be crappy. No one really cares. I can go play hockey on Wednesday nights and be the worst player out there. And I still might care a little, but at the end of the day, it's just for fun. So I love finding things like that where, yeah, I don't, I don't have to put my all into. Yeah, I really admire that because I, I think that for most adults, play is around a structure of competition. You know, even if, even as you say, if it's beer league hockey or yeah. something, I don't mean to denigrate your your hockey league. It's a musician's <laughs> hockey league, actually. <laughs> One step below beer okay. league, rum rum league. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but even then, you know, you're keeping score and so on, and that's as adults what we tend to do instead of just be in it for the play. So, have you tried to do improv with Kristen? She doesn't want to. And, you know, it's funny because I studied theater as well. Or when I was in high school, I loved theater. But it's something about 
being put on the spot in that way in a th- in a thinking capacity. I just I don't like how it makes me feel. And it's funny because it's just Mike and I like I know mm-hmm. he it's he won't judge me. We're very silly together. Like we make up songs and dances and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that it's more of the being put on the spot feeling that makes me uncomfortable. It doesn't feel fun to me. So let's dig into that. (laughs) (laughs) So do you think that has something to do with your relationship, perhaps in your childhood with mistakes and maybe your choice of putting blue streaks in your hair and being judged for it? Or I'm just asking. Yeah, possibly. And certainly can relate to having an identity of perfectionism and having to, you know, after childhood went into a life in politics. So I wasn't an elected official, but worked with them. And again, very important that you present in a certain way. And (laughs) that certain way is not yes and it's you know quiet and professional and postural and these things but i don't know if there's a linkage there or not it just it isn't something i find freedom and joy in Mm -hmm. i'm amazed that you are a a self-identified recovering perfectionist is that how you would put it say that that's what i am yeah because your art is so free. Mm. Your art is so for me, the when I when I um when I paint, it's like that blank canvas might as well be Freddy Krueger. It's terrifying because I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to do something that's bad. And I identify that in myself. But then I look at art like yours, where it's just so liberated and joyful and it Thank looks you. like it's to me, it's the embodiment of growth mindset, which is sort of what Mike is talking about. Like, I like to put myself in the situations where I need to, you know, be out of my element and grow. That's a very entrepreneurial uh, mindset. I'm I'm naturally more fixed mindset where I think I have a certain amount of intelligence, a certain amount of talent, and that's it. And if I fail at something, then that means I'm a failure. Yeah. But you couldn't do paintings like this if you had that. Discovering this style of painting has really changed my my life and my being for for a lot of these reasons in that it's so it I don't feel responsible for it. So with something that's abstract, I don't have a idea in mind that it has to be that way. If I was painting your portrait, <laughs> which if I were painting it would probably look terrible, but I, I, it's the technique, I think it's finding, and that to me is how it's different from improv, for example, where I know this thing that brings that feeling of freedom, of joy, of expansion. This is not that thing. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's, I guess maybe a little bit about fear, but it's more just about knowing what I like. Yeah. And holding boundaries and saying, that doesn't give me pleasure. Yeah. This does. So I'm going to do this instead. That said, there's something to be said for doing things that are outside your comfort zone. Absolutely. And I just find those in different areas, I would say. I can see how your paintings, now that you describe it that way, I can see how they really embody play rather than perfection. So it's like you're playing in a collaborative way with the paint and the gravity and I don't know how you make them, but 
I know there are other instruments that you're playing with. Yeah, and thank you for saying that. It's it's so complimentary, especially here from you. But it's yeah, it's it's the style. I often say it's a relationship with the paint in that it kind of guides me. So instead of me having to control it, it's kind of telling me where it wants to go, and it's forming these beautiful patterns, and I'm just allowing that to happen. And I can't help but feel like art is an expression of our whole self. It's not just me today. Like, this is a culmination of my whole life. Mm -hmm. And so it feeling like I can let go a little bit just isn't, it's a nice space to be in. And I think that's why the creations, you know, they're showing up like they are. They're reflective of this whole experience that we've had. So... So not to bring it back to me, but... <laughs> no, bring it. This is your podcast. You know, okay. Uh, what do you think of me? No. Um, I would say that you just described my book. Because I do not feel like... I felt like my book wrote me. Yes. I felt like those I words moved through me, didn't come from me. And when I tried to force it, that's when it didn't work. And that's why I needed to be near nature. I needed to be in a place where I really felt present because then I can allow what wants to come through. And, and there are so many artists, so many musicians who talk about, you know, the, the muse and, and connecting and, and having that sort of spiritual sense of I'm working with something beyond the veil here and I'm just cooperating. I'm a tool and they're giving it to me. I don't know. They're handing it to me. And how did you have that experience? Or Because I know your book was originally meant to be, or your idea was to talk about the fear of getting over public speaking, <laughs> which we could all use that tool, that information as well. But Maybe another day. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Like, that'll be another book, um, perhaps. But how, how was it going from departing from that original idea and then having the experience of, whoa, this is, this is right. Like, this is coming through me now. Like, was there any sense of loss from the book you didn't write? Or were you just so embodied in what it ended up being that that was okay? Um, it was It was a roller coaster from being... Yes, this is right to what the hell is going on? <laughs> Do, you know, when you'd be down safely uh, on the roller coaster, it was like, oh, yeah, that's fun. But then at the very top when you're going, ah, that, that part wasn't fun. And I had a lot of those. It was a rolly roller coaster. <laughs> and and um, I really went through the who am I to write a book and why would I want to? I've been private for a long time since I left television. Why would I want to be this personal? Like, how are people going to react? What what am what am I thinking? So I questioned myself a lot. And the greatest process for me in terms of my writing was getting out of my own way and just allowing. And I think that says a lot about my life in general. You know, when I get in my own way, then I'm not living my life in a happy, fulfilled, easy way. And when I am just allowing and going with the flow, that's when, that's where the joy is found. And I found a lot of joy in writing this, but I also found a lot of therapy because my book is structured, as you know, as a, as a dig. And the dig, archaeological dig, that 
was meant to discover what was beneath my lack of contentedness because I was living what most people would think was a perfect life. I, you know, I had a perfect job. I had a perfect husband. I lived in a perfect house. And, and I beat myself up a lot because I had this unhappiness and I would say, what the hell is your problem? And I would literally look out at this beautiful moonlit uh, water from my bedroom window and think, what's wrong with me that I'm not happy? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm deeply flawed. Uh, and maybe I'll never be happy because of that. And so it it meant I knew a fair bit when I started writing the book about what that was because I've done lots of work. But I also, as I dug, I was digging with my pen and I was figuring out new pieces of my own self and my own psyche and and the things that have held me back and the things that were there that had sort of been the roots of that unhappiness. And so that was hard work. And it was work that I turned away from sometimes and said, no, no, man, I can't do this. This is this was a stupid idea. Let's go back to the fear of public speaking book. (laughs) But it it has done two things. It has led me to a place where I really understand myself a lot better and I feel a complete new sense of comfort in my life so that when I'm coming to show up for a conversation with you guys today, my old paradigm would be to be worried and think about, okay, what do I need to say and how and what if they ask me this or what if I don't do well? Well, don't worry. We thought all that, those things. This <laughs> we were like, so. Nancy's our Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that's so funny. You pulled it in yeah. like, Nancy Regan's here. <laughs> There's a whole Mel Gibson uh, story in my book, but it's funny because I'm doing a, a keynote this Friday and um, for a large corporate group and The title of the keynote is Showing Up, the Transformative Power of Authenticity. However, I have a B side. (laughs) So the the alternative um, title is, or how Mel Gibson helped me show up for Oprah, (laughs) which I kind of love because it's like, what? (laughs) That's in, you've got to admit, that's intriguing. It's very intriguing. And I, you tell, you tell the story in your book and it's brilliant and how he really made you feel at ease, which I knew before you got here would happen. I was like, because, yeah, we were, you're, you're, it's a pretty special that you're here, Nancy. Like, you're <laughs> so funny to me. Pretty sorry. I know, maybe oh it is gosh. funny to hear that, but we just, I also knew just having read your book and just seeing you that immediately we would feel at ease. And that's exactly what happened. Like, you just have that presence and ability about you. And I imagine part of that is because you've gone through it yourself. Like, you, you know what it's like to feel like us, I guess, in, in this scenario, at least. And, oh boy. Yeah. I mean, before that Mel Gibson interview you're referencing, I was literally wearing a path in the carpet at the Four Seasons Beverly Hills. <laughs> and and my friend who worked for Paramount was looking at me like, what are you doing? Like, you've done so many of these interviews. What's your problem? He was in Braveheart. And I was like, hello, say. it's Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> you just hold up a picture of yeah, him. This yeah. is the man I will be sitting across from. Yeah. And now we know, you know, like the rest of us, he He's flawed and and has had lots of issues that he's dealt with. And and what I learned that day is that, you know, he's also someone who dealt with insecurity and he just 
when I was honest enough in response to his question, hey, how are you doing today? As they're putting the mic on me, when I was honest enough to say, actually, I'm a little nervous, which I had never broken that sort of facade before in mm -hmm. one of those interviews. And he just looked at me and he was like, the same way I feel as with you saying, oh, we were nervous. Like, uh, he was like, you're nervous of talking to me? And then he just went into this whole thing where he said, watch me. And he started making all these ridiculous faces and putting his hands in his mouth. And and then after about 30 seconds, he said, there, do you feel better? And it was like, guess what? I was sitting across from a human being Yeah. instead of an icon and a persona. I was sitting in front of the person. And, and that made me realize that yeah, you know what? It doesn't matter how much money or fame or or uh, accomplishments you have. We're we're all just the same and we're all tripping through life and trying to too often we're trying to convince everybody that everything's good. So what I now say is we're I like to think of it as this. We're all either fraud or flawed. So either you're pretending everything's perfect and you're being a fraud or you're comfortable with the idea that, yeah, we're all flawed. We have parts of ourselves that we don't love and that we're not, you know, waving a flag about. But if we can learn to accept them and maybe even love them, like my ADHD brain, which I resented for so long. Now, Kristen, you'll get this. I would never trade my messy, disorganized, creative brain for a linear, organized, you know, left brain focused mind. Yeah. Is your, I, I want to say, I'll call it your former self, the CTV News Nancy. Is that still part of you? Like, do you still carry her with you? And does she play a meaningful role in this chapter of your life? She does because she helped me learn how to speak in public. And uh, it's, you know, promoting a book has been really a very different thing than writing a book. In fact, mm. it's, it's a, I've talked to several authors about it. And recently, even last night, uh, Nikki Davison, who's a great Nova Scotia author. And I said, like, I'm kind of sick of promoting my book. I'm getting sick of myself. And I just want to crawl back into that creative space and write. But my book doesn't come out in the U.S. until January. And, and then my audiobook comes out after that. So I'm still going to be promoting it for a while. Yeah. And I feel like the skills that I got standing on television every day definitely serve me. Because even if you're... If Paul Menye and I used to joke, if we had a show that we weren't excited about, you know, we'd be standing there in front of the camera getting ready in the last two minutes before we were going live. And we would jokingly say, yeah, folks, nothing to see here today. Sorry, we got a shitty show today. You might as well flip right over to the religion channel. Better chance. I'd like and, to see that footage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and then, of course, when they'd say 10 seconds, five, four, three, and then Good evening, everyone. We've got a fantastic show for you tonight. You know, it, you couldn't mm. go on the air and say, yeah, we don't really feel like being here. And people would constantly say, oh, you guys are so great. You clearly just love your jobs so much. Mm. Well, 
you know what? Some days we did and some days we didn't. But when you're a performer, Mike, you know that. Maybe less so as a musician. You can be in a more authentic space as a musician, perhaps. I feel like no matter what I'm going through, I can always get up on stage and perform. If Mm -hmm. I'm feeling sick, if I'm sad, whatever. If I have a show, I will get up and perform and make it a good show no matter what. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if that's just because I'm a people pleaser and don't want people to think something's wrong or something's off. But uh, I think it's part of my duty as well. Like I, if people paid money to come see me, right. like I have to get up there and perform. Like my dad flew back and forth to Fort McMurray to work. He probably didn't want to be going there every time. <laughs> and there's countless examples of things people had to had to do and i know i love playing music too so it's not it's not something i i don't want to get up on stage but sometimes like <laughs> i feel like i'm gonna shit my pants or something and <laughs> i gotta go up and i have a 100 percent uh track record of not doing that so far and but sometimes <laughs> oh, you think you might <laughs> so it's uh i you just put on the put on your game face yeah and that is you know, anyone could relate to that probably in just about any business or work yeah. world that there is. And that's the fake it till you make it part, too. Yeah, right. Sometimes you have to put on that mask and just say, yeah, everything's great today. Um, Pete Luckett taught me a great lesson when we were working together at Pete's Boutique. And uh, he told me about uh, a friend of his who had just gone out of business. And I was so surprised. And he said, oh no, why would you be surprised? Whenever anyone asked him how business was, he would say how terrible it was. And he said, I don't care how business is. If someone asked me, it is fantastic. (laughs) And so there is that element in business. And I think that's very much attached to the fact that as human beings, we want to be associated with success. And that, you know, goes back to judgment. It goes back to what will the neighbors think? But we want to be associated with companies that are successful. We want to be associated with people, friends, whatever, who who are considered popular or successful in whatever way that shows up. So I'm not saying that you've got to go to work and just tell everybody how terrible you're feeling. And I'm not naive enough to say that Everyone can go into every aspect of their life with their fully authentic self. But if you can do it in some degrees, and if you can find ways to really get comfortable yourself with your own authenticity, then it will bleed into your life in the best possible way, the best kind of bleeding. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because we've often talked about how there's a little bit of exhaustion that comes with self-promotion or there, there's yeah. there's a certain feeling about it that it's almost icky at times. Like like you're describing, I'm, I'm, I've had enough of myself. Exactly. And we have that struggle with social media, yet we're entrepreneurs and we have to let people know we're out here and we have a product and we're selling. But we've also come to find, I don't feel that way about other people. Like I don't look at mm-hmm. your feed or the feeds of others or websites and think, why are you talking about yourself so much? You actually, you know, there's an extent. Don't to, you feel it sometimes? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, sometimes but it's more it depends than methodology. How it's done. Yeah, yes. exactly. It's a methodology. Then Good the fact word. that they're 
doing it. I mean, I, I understand and can relate to the need of having to do it. But yes, there's something about, yeah, you, you know when there's uh, a tactic or, yeah, there's an intention around it that's maybe a little less sincere. So it's also about being in service in a weird way, because if if you feel that the product you're promoting is serving somehow and making people happier or helping them break open or just making their life a little brighter by having a painting of yours on their wall. Like that would just make me happy every day looking at that painting that's in front of me. Then it's easier to be in promotion for that Mm -hmm. because then it's not about look at me, look at me. It's about contribution. And I, the one thing I teach my speaking clients more than anything is that if you're focused before you go on stage on your performance, you're thinking about how other people are going to be judging you and their opinions. If you can flip the switch, instead walk onto the stage thinking about the contribution that you're there to make. What are you giving them? What do you have that you're giving them? And actually, you know, giving them value. And all of a sudden, that takes so much of the nervousness away. Because it puts you in a in a position of, I don't want to say power, because it's not a conventional kind of power, but just it, it means that you have a job to do there and you're just doing your job. You're right. a tool. It's like I said, I'm a tool. I'm an instrument. And that has helped so many people learn to get over their nervousness on stage. Because if you are up there thinking about how people are judging you, you're not present. And, you know, stage presence is a term that people think, what does that really mean? Or, you know, we know it when we see it, but what is it? And for me, it's really presence. Yeah. Someone who can stand on stage and truly be present without worrying about how they're standing or how they're looking or how they're sounding or how they're being judged and just own their own power by standing there on stage and sharing. Do you have any advice for public speaking about the body response? Because we can, it's one thing to have a logical conversation with yourself to say like, this this is fine. It's fine. Like no big deal. But your body is sweating and your heart's racing. And how do you manage that part of being in public? It's funny. It's uh, very much what we talked about with the butterflies. You know, they can either be out of control or you can have those butterflies fly in formation and it can be (laughs) excitement. And um, I think it's really important that people recognize that when they have that fear reaction before they go on stage, and I quoted Jerry Seinfeld in my book. I love his quote so much. And that's, you know, he read that people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. And so he said, that means that if you go to a funeral, most people there would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. (laughs) And, And that's so true. But for me, the fear of public speaking is really the fear of public being and being seen. And if you dig beneath that, it's the fear of being seen as inadequate. And if you dig beneath that, it's the fear that we hold that we actually are inadequate. And so for me, that was 
part of my dig and figuring out, oh, that that not enoughness that lived dark down in my shadow that I really didn't feel I deserved the success. I didn't think I was smart enough. I had all of this muck of not enoughness. And so if you can address that, then you can find a way to really be comfortable on stage mm-hmm. and show up rather than show off. But the to get there, you've got to learn to harness that very primal reaction because it is your body is reacting in the same way that if you were a cave woman, Kristen, and there was a saber-toothed tiger chasing you, your body would do all of those physiological things. And your your if Florence was tracking you down. Yeah. Florence? Lawrence. Oh, Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And and because we sense being out with all those eyes looking at us as a threat, and that's a very that's a very primal thing. You know, if you were, I suppose, if you were a cave woman and you looked around you and that many pairs of eyes were watching you, you were either about to be eaten or you were in a tribal judgment setting where they were deciding what your fate was going to be sacrificed maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. so i think mm-hmm. that i think that uh, there is an internal message that goes hey, you're in trouble and so your body goes into all of those reactions but your breath is and that's where presence comes in your breath is your greatest tool to take back your power because your breath goes shallow when you go into fight or flight. And that's your sympathetic nervous system, as you probably know. And to get back into your parasympathetic nervous system, where some of us very rarely go these days, a lot of people are always in that fight or flight in their whole life. Everything is in that fight or flight system. But to get into that parasympathetic system, you have to demonstrate to your brain that everything's fine. And when you're taking deep breaths, if you're doing an in count for four and then holding it for four and an out count for four and then holding it for four, box breathing, that sends a message to your brain, oh, we can't be in danger because we wouldn't be breathing like this if we were in danger. And it just calms you right down. And there are, you know, I, I talk about different types of breathing techniques that have really helped me, like alternate nostril breathing. And uh, you can do a four, seven, eight. So you're breathing in for a count of four, holding it for a count of seven. And when I say holding, I don't mean like tightly, but just pausing, not breathing, hanging between the, the in and out breath. And then out for a breath of eight which is a long time. It's like letting air slowly out of a balloon. And that just really shifts gears for you. If you were a car, it would shift you. Can you hear? I keep moving my headset. (laughs) It would shift you into first gear. Have you ever done any holotropic breathing? Yeah, I have. I've done two breath workshops. Yeah. And it was incredible. I did a session, just an online session. And the first time I did it was almost psychedelic. Yeah. Like, I just felt like I was, 
part of space and time and just floating through the cosmos and just I just had a smile on my face and my whole body felt like it wasn't there and I've done it a few times after and didn't have that experience and I think because I felt it the first time I was expecting it both other times so I wasn't able to get there because I'm like okay when's it going to happen when's it? and the first time I'm just okay I don't know what to expect mm-hmm. but there's definitely some powerful stuff that can happen with that. I had the opposite experience because oh. um, the first time I did it, I didn't know what to expect, but I was guarded. You see, yeah. you're more you're more open, you're more growth mindset than I am, and I was guarded. Like, what's going to happen, and, and yeah. how am I going to look when it happens, and all that. Um, but it was pretty powerful, just the same. Yeah. And then the second time. I was, okay, now I'm going to relax into this. And you, in in the way I did it, you start standing up. Okay. And you're breathing, and it's a very deep breathing with your mouth open. So you're breathing through your mouth. And um, the first time I did it, my mind was like, no, this isn't going to work. My my mouth's getting too dry. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. And then I dropped into something. And you really do go deep. Yeah. The second time, I wasn't in that same state of resistance. And I, as I was standing there, they say that you start standing up. And at some point, just when you know it's going to happen, you will lie down or sit down, whatever you just do. But while I was standing there, I had a beautiful experience of this image of the women who I have loved and lost holding my legs, the bottoms of my legs, like wrapping their arms and hands around the bottoms of my legs like they were roots of a tree. Wow, that's so beautiful. And saying to me, we've got you, so you can grow, you can, you know, you can branch out, basically, and and don't keep yourself small, because we've got you rooted, grounded. And I ended up doing a painting like that, um, in a Holly Carr painting workshop, incredible because it was so moving, and I it, I love that painting. And that was my first workshop with her silk painting, and the next workshop I went back to her and had your kind of experience because I was like, I'm going to create another masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> and I created a piece of shit. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I I really. I cannot tell you. People are afraid of meditation. People who don't meditation don't meditate or aren't in, you know, uh, yoga groups and that sort of thing have this idea of meditation as being so woo-woo. And simple mindfulness is just being present and finding ways to sit here and say, okay, all of a sudden, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm just going to feel the tips of my fingers. I'm going to feel the blood in the tips of my fingers. And you feel the throb, like you feel your heartbeat in the tips of your fingers, just taking your attention there. And normally going through your day, would you say, oh, you'd never notice that. You'd Mm -hmm. never hear what you might just, if you tune into, okay, I'm just going to listen to every little noise I can hear. Well, that drives you into the present moment. And it takes you out of worry and rumination, and it takes you out of fear, and that's the that's my whole joy these days. Yeah, and if you believe that 
thoughts become things or you become your thoughts, you have to really shine a light on, well, what am I thinking about all day? And I, I think there's a little bit of a maybe misunderstanding that meditation is thinking about nothing. Yeah. When I don't think that's possible. I've never got there. No, but neither. <laughs> you know, meditation can be washing the dishes and you're just thinking about how the warm water feels on your hands or the birds that are chirping outside the window while you're doing that. Like it, it, it's really it doesn't have to be more complicated than that, I suppose. But it teaches your mind that like this is where I'm spending time This rather than in rumination or mm. in the past or whatever, you know, your default mode might be. So back to your notion of practice as well. It's, it's a practice. Yeah. And scientists will tell you that they can measure the physiological change in your brain when you start a meditation practice or mindfulness practice. So, you know, there's a real reason. It's not just to sit there and try to be blissed out. There's a real reason. It grounds you. It, it uh is amazingly helpful if you have anxiety, and I speak to that personally. Mm -hmm. So I want to know, did Eckhart Tolle teach you how to wash dishes? Because that's... That's that, in the that's, power of now, That's isn't it. it. Yeah. I got that out of the power <laughs> now. And honestly, every time I wash dishes, I think about him saying, you know, because I'm so often in a state of resistance or resentment, like, why am I doing the dishes or all these things I could be doing instead? And I go, oh, okay. Hi, Eckhart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and these little do it. examples, these relatable examples often stick with me because it's like, yeah, we all wash dishes often. Yeah. I'm washing dishes often. So I think about how, like, how do I make this a more positive experience? And it doesn't have to be because time is another barrier to, to many. I don't have time to meditate. Well, you can really be technically meditating or or just demonstrating presence in any given moment of your of your life. Yeah. So, like when done. you're walking down the street and you feel your heel hit the ground and you roll onto your toe and every time my heel is hitting and I'm walking and I'm or you can, you know, look around at the leaves, trees and actually be actively yeah. engaged in what you're doing. Do you have a daily practice of something specific that you find some peace in doing? I'm terrible. I'm going to be, I'm going to uh, walk my walk um, and be honest that I'm terrible about having a daily practice. Mm -hmm. And often I beat myself up about that because, oh, I've fallen off my daily practice. And then I get back on and that's part of the practice. Yeah. So... I the one thing I always do is in the morning when I wake up before I get out of bed I have a gratitude practice and it is it starts with gratitude but then it's also uh asking how may I be of service today and a friend of mine David McGinley who is a, a wonderful human and he works with cancer patients uh going through their journeys and he's a chaplain he wrote a book called Beyond Surviving and is working on another one. But it's always stuck with me that he says, love through me. That's his message when he's having a moment of contemplation in the morning. And for him, it would be God, I think. You know, just his conversation with God mm -hmm. is love through me. So that's about being an instrument. Right. And contributing to the world to make it better somehow. And that's a big part of my daily practice. And, uh, you know, my practice, 
every day is coming back to the present moment over and over and over again when I slip way out of it. And that's kind of beautifully imperfect. It's flawed and and that's how I am and I don't judge myself for that anymore. Yeah. How do you know where to focus your creative energy at a given time? Because myself and Kristen, we, we do a lot of things. We, we host this podcast and write and I make music. Kristen makes art. We're, we're always working on different projects and have different visions of where we want things to go. And I see you as very similar in that way. You, you do a lot of things. So does, does one thing at a time kind of rise up? Like this is where I need to focus. Or are you spreading your energy about, amongst them all at the same time? And they slowly each grow. Like how do you balance that? Well, you're asking me that in a funny week because I have a busy week and I feel like a little rat m moving in all different directions. <laughs> like, okay, now I'm going to do some speaking. Now I'm yeah. going to do some emceeing. Now I'm going to do some podcast. And I'm leaving here today to go interview someone else for my own podcast, yeah. The Canadian Love Map. Um, so what I would say is that I try to just follow the breadcrumbs, That's if that's an acceptable yeah. answer. But I will say that I can really resent certain work getting in the way of my creative work. And when I have a creative idea bubbling up, everything else that I have to do ends up making me a little bit angsty or resentful. And then I have to, that's the practice. I catch myself and I go, oh, look at you, that old pattern. Let that go. Let that shit go. And just come back to presence and say, this is what it is. This is what I'm doing right now. Yeah. So, so much of our turmoil in life is created by wishing that we were doing something else other than what we're doing, that we had other means other than what we have, or that our life was different than it was. And you look at famous people, and that gets back to like all those famous people that I've met all those famous people that I've met have just taught me that we're all the same. Like we're all, and, and money doesn't solve anything. In mm -hmm. fact, I think it just makes your problems bigger sometimes. Although I wouldn't mind winning the lottery because I always think I would be such a good person to win the lottery. <laughs> yes. I would give so much of it away. I would solve so many people's problems. Uh. Yeah. So it's out there now. Yeah, exactly. We'll manifest yes, this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm, and I'm, well, how much would you guys like when I win? I, I mean, we can make our yeah, list. We'll make a few our more list microphones, yeah. maybe another guitar. Uh, not, nothing too crazy. A uh, sauna and hot tub would be good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've created, you've created a beautiful space here for yourselves to live and play and work. And I think that should be a template for a lot of people. Yeah, it's, yes. At the very least, creating a solid foundation, like where you wake up in the morning, starting your day off in that sense of peace at the very least mm. is a gift. And that you can do it together mm -hmm. and spend a lot of time. I know you have different rooms of the house where you work and so on, but you spend a lot of your time together. So what's the secret? We're asked about this a fair amount, I guess, just because it's unique that we not only do we work together, but we're both artists. Mm -hmm. So I, I think 
we've become really great communicators. We've come to allow because we we struggle with the same sense of like we were talking about earlier guilt if I'm, we're not producing and this and that. And so we've really had to allow the other person like if you need a down day, if you need to sit on the couch and watch movies all day, I'm not going to be the person to pass judgment. And That's and just big. yeah, it, it, but it's taking time. We never really do it, but <laughs> we we try. We, but we yeah. acknowledge that yeah. if you need this, I support that decision. Like I don't need for you to be the same in the same space as me all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like you know, last night the three of us were at this book event, Booktoberfest, and like things like that. Like, yeah, you you got to show up with me. Like we've got this obligation. But I think it's really been just a, a slow simmer of mutual understanding and listening and all the things maybe they tell you that marriage is about. But mm-hmm. I uh, I have a, a funny example that ties in everything we've talked about <laughs> on this podcast. Perfect. Bring it. So last year when we were releasing our book, uh, we, we wanted to make a promo video. And we didn't have anything in mind at the time. And we, we went for a walk. We we love to go for walks. That's something we, we do together often. And it just, we, we talk on those walks. We come up with ideas. We solve problems. We just, I don't know, get to the root of a lot of things. And on that walk, it was it happened to be garbage day that day. And we were out while, the, the before the truck had come around. And I saw a baseball bat just lying there. And I'm like, that's a good baseball bat. <laughs> and I'm like, so I'm I'm gonna take it, obviously. Like I'm from Cape Breton. This is I'm not I'm not gonna walk Free stuff. I'm not gonna walk by a baseball bat and not take it. So a perfectly good baseball bat. I finish the walk with that on my shoulder. <laughs> and we get home and it was a beautiful fall day, kind of like this, and we had just been given a bag of apples a few weeks earlier that we didn't get to eat and, oh i can see where this is and going. we looked at them like, oh it's the apples are kind of rotten now and I'm like wouldn't it be fun to just smash some with the baseball bat and I'm like wait a second let's make a promo video out of this so we i gave Kristen the bat and uh, I started tossing apples at her. I think I was holding the camera and tossing them while you were swinging. And we just, this is where play comes in. Like, we just laughed so hard. Like, Kristen taking swings, and I go up, and we'd smash them. We'd get covered in apple juice. And Our neighbors, thinking of what would your neighbors think? They yeah, must yeah. have thought we were quite foolish so, that day. So we did... The thing we wanted to do, go for a walk that we find both find enjoyment with in and f- found something, an opportunity we just couldn't pass up, the right. baseball bat. Then we created a promotional video that we had to do anyway, had a lot of fun doing it and just, I don't know, things like that we, we do quite often. Like that kind of sums up mm-hmm. what our relationship really is. It's like, an organic life. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of fun in it, but a lot of thought too. Like we're always having conversations about just yeah, ideas for the future or how can we afford a sauna? (laughs) 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 Um and yeah, I think that example is just kind of sums up who we are as a as a duo. You were talking about vulnerability before. Yeah. And that vulnerability is 
you know, people think of it as weakness, but it's really a strength. Do you see vulnerability as a strength in your relationship? Yeah, I think it's uh, really important in communicating. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. It's like two years ago, we started watching. Well, I think we were at a hotel. We went to a hotel to write our book um, down in uh, Liverpool. What was the spot called? Lanes, Privateers. Lanes, Privateers. Yeah. We just said, let's go. It was right in the heart of the pandemic. And we wanted to just go somewhere else to work on our writing. And that night, uh, the bachelor, the bachelorette, one of those was on the one where it's a bunch of guys and one girl. Which one is that? That's <laughs> the bachelorette, I guess. Or no, the I don't know. Whatever. Okay. Just one girl, one it. girl bachelorette. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so we <laughs> an episode of that came on, and we we thought it was funny, and then we don't really watch TV, but we said, but we decided we kind of got hooked on the on the that that season of it, and we watched the whole. The whole season, <laughs> and every time I found it funny, every time uh, the girl liked the guy it was when the guy was being vulnerable. Uh-huh. She's like, "Oh, you you finally brought down your walls and are showing your true self." <laughs> and any every single time she had a connection with a guy on the show, uh, and and he's like, "Yeah, I'm just trying to be vulnerable." Like it was always like it seemed like the most cliche thing, but. It is obviously important, and that yeah. they in, on that show that those were the moments that actually created the connections between them. Like you can marriage tips are found through The Bachelor now. I know. And, yeah. Who and, knew? And, <laughs> and hitting apples with a ba- rotten apples with a baseball yeah. bat that you yeah. found in the garbage. Yeah, so. but that's the brilliant work of Dr. Brene Brown, right? That you can't have. So we all crave true connection. But we stand in its way by not being authentic because you can't have real connection unless you allow your real self to be seen in, you know, in in all its flawedness in, in yeah. your own mind. Yeah, I don't I think we're all imperfectly perfect. So mm-hmm. flawed is a is a term I use, but I don't really mean it. I mean, it's just that is what we are. We are, you know, we come with the little imperfections, little glitches that we think, oh, people aren't going to like those. But if we can really be authentic with other people, which is what I set out to do in this book, we can create meaningful connection. And that's what I feel when I get messages from people who've read the book. They're not, I don't think they're typical messages that authors would get. Like, oh, I loved, you know, that character and I love your book. This is like, holy crap. People say to me, you change the way I look at myself or I look at my life and that sort of thing. And it's like, so we get into big conversations. The reason I'm wearing Converse on the, my Converse sneakers on the cover of the book is because I wanted to not only get back to who I was before the world told me who and how to be when I was a little sweet tomboy, um, but also I wanted to use the converse because it the book is meant to create conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's corny, but it's that was my intention. Yeah. And I wanted it right there on the cover. And I wanted to say to people when they say, oh, I'm reading your book, and I, I always say, talk to me about it like reach out because it's about creating conversation and i'll tell you i've had conversations with people i've known for 30 35 years that are at a whole new level now 
because of the vulnerability I showed in the yeah. book. So they open up in the same way. And it's like, oh, now we're looking at each other instead of each other's masks. It's almost like you've taken the first step and it gives permission for others to be like, oh, okay, it's safe to go there with her. Yes. Or myself. Yeah, yeah I love that uh, way of looking at it. Yeah. And those messages, and our book is more just kind of funny and just lighthearted where we don't have any... I guess there's some love messages in there, but but getting getting those messages and comments from people, how it just lifted their spirits. And like, I was going through such a hard period and I read this and I just sat there and laughed out loud for the whole evening and I just feel so much better. And we're like, that is exactly what we wanted to do. Like, we just wanted, it's a lighthearted, fun read that's, can put a smile on your face and especially during the pandemic when a lot of people weren't experiencing that we 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 wanted to put that out and those messages whether we receive one or a million it, it's it's worth it completely it's light like, in the darkness that's what i'm talking about yeah. light in the darkness and your book is a, you know it has so much love and heart and inspiration and connection it has all of those good juicy things that people want in their lives and it's right there in one little package yeah. and so no wonder it makes them feel good like really congratulations wow. and you made it happen like you just did it that's the thing a lot of people yeah. think about doing things like this but then when you actually make it happen and put it out into the world and be courageous enough to to put your baby out into yeah. the world that's that's a big deal and i'm i'm proud of myself for having yeah. done that in fact some some days i'm shocked yeah. that i did it writing a book is a different kind of art it's mm. I, in being able to say that as seasoned artists like it's it's unlike any other project and so anyone else who has walked that path we have the utmost respect for we know what goes into it and it's not just the the words on the pages but the process of the aftermath of that the evolution the marketing all you know the, we're all in this world now and mm -hmm. that's something the marketing part too is something that you don't really plan for or we didn't i mean you know it's something oh, you have neither. to do but like you wait until like okay now i do that step and so it's kind of a weird phase to be in but I love playing in this space, though, of promoting other people's art. Yeah. And I have found that with a few authors, but also artists. Like I told you, Christina Martin posted an amazing promo the other day, and she's such a phenomenal singer and human being and musician. And I saw this fun a lighthearted promo that was also really creative. And it's like, boom, yep, I'm sharing that to my yeah. platform for sure. Because if I can help her just by hitting a button and typing some words, why wouldn't I do that? Exactly. And there are, you know, other authors like James Mullinger, who's a, a great Canadian comedian now who came from the UK and is really taken, he, he has taken Canada by storm but he had a book, Brit Happens, that came out at the same time as mine. And he has a podcast called Mullinger Meets Canadians. And we interviewed each other on our podcasts and just were like kindred spirits. And we are basically um, in this unofficial competition to see who can promote the other person's book more. <laughs> and that's, well, here's another plug for yeah, him on this there, podcast. Oh, I just did it again. Yeah, I did check it again. that box. Brit Happens. It's, uh, it really is. It's funny. 
it's so funny because he's a brilliant comedian, but it's also full of heart. And yeah, you would love him if we had a dinner party, you know, and and if we can all be supportive of one another, then that's a great way to promote art. Absolutely. Yes. And that was part of our motivation for starting this podcast was wanting to both normalize the life of an artist, give a little bit of information about what that looks like. But we've we've met so many talented, passionate with, you know, the, the, everyone has something to share with us. We've learned something from every guest episode. It's It's been such a joy. And to have these types of intimate, long form conversations seems like a bit of a lost art that we've we've I can't say enough about it. Podcasting is one of my most favorite creative projects that we've done. So, I mean, we're sitting across from you right now. The long form makes a difference, doesn't it? And I'm making it longer by saying this. Mm-hmm. But um, you can't I, I had advice, advice from people in their 20s and 30s when I started my first podcast, The Soul Booth. And my whole concept was for it for it to be long form conversation. And they would say, oh, you know, it, it would do better if it was like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you can't get where I want to go. Yeah, you got to dig in. Yeah. And relax into it. Yeah. So I, I love this opportunity. This is like the opposite of what I consider cocktail talk. Right. Yeah. It's like exactly allowing yourself to be seen and really expressing curiosity and interest in the other person and not what they're doing or achieving, but who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's it. We just feel so lucky that this is part of our world now. And we could sit and talk with you for probably another eight hours. But I know you're busy and we've had this beautiful time with you, Nancy. I I can't thank you enough just for being here with us. But I knew before you came how we would feel. But I, I you're just magnetic. Like I, I just am so excited to have you in our orbit and for you to share the work that you have with your book. It's something that I know many have deeply resonated with. And it's a hard thing to do to put yourself out there like that. And again, I'll reiterate just the gesture of doing that, I think, is meaningful. I think I I can't resist saying you two are magnetic, but I think the magnetism goes back to what we talked about stage presence, because you're present. And when human beings see other people who are confident, they have two reactions. One is they don't like that. It's like they're too full of themselves. Shouldn't we be full of ourselves? Mm -hmm. And I think more so it's that they wish they could be that. And when we see people who are really present and authentic, that's magnetic because that's what we want to be. My gosh, it's so relaxing to take off all the armor and to take off the mask and just say, this is me. Take me or leave me. And thank you for taking me today. Oh, God. (laughs) So fun. I will come back anytime. I want to come back and play. I want to come back and paint. Yeah. And scotch hit, and paint night. Hit some apples in hit the backyard. Some apples. Yeah. Any more apples? <laughs> we'll Not, get some. We'll get some. Yeah, Kristen's from the valley. This is the perfect so. time of year, actually, to get yeah. a bag of rotten apples from the valley. <laughs> okay, just whistle. I'm here. Okay, done. Honestly. Done. Where can our listeners find you and find your work? Of course, we'll include it in our show notes. But if there's any events coming up that you want to talk about, um, yeah, floor is yours. Oh my gosh. I think I'll just give you my website, which is simple. It's nancyregan.ca, N A N C Y R E G A N 
nancyregan.ca. If you go to the .com, you'll find a totally different Nancy Regan. Mm. Check her out, too, for fun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and if she works in a financial sphere in the States. So I can't help you with your finances. If that's what you're looking for, go to her. Uh, so nancyregan.ca. And I host the Canadian Love Map podcast, which you two were featured on. Right on yeah. So if anyone hasn't heard that episode, bonjour. Mm. Like, head for that, because it was, it was so lovely. And that is the same kind of project we're talking about. It's it's light in the darkness. It's uh, it was started during the pandemic, and it just lifts people's spirits. It's just lovely people from across the country doing things they love or with people they love, mm-hmm. and uh, I love it. So that's all I got. Oh, oh and my it. book is called <laughs> "From Showing Off to Showing Up: An Imposter's Journey from Perfect to Present," and you can. Get it at small independent bookstores or order it through them. Or you can go to the bigger chains or online on Amazon or Chapters. And one last question. What's your favorite flavor of chips? This will be the one that stumps her. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting because you. I would have said ketchup for a long time. And this is yeah. a testament to the fact that we evolve as human beings Ketchup was definitely my fave for a long time. Mm-hmm. Then I grew into being a salt and vinegar salt connoisseur. And vinegar. That's, wow. It was Miss Vicky that turned my yeah. my attention to salt and vinegar. And now she's got some kooky flavor that's like sour cream and chili. Oh, that's a deadly mm. Have you kind. had that? I oh, have. Oh, bonjour That Vicky again. can cook. That Vicky knows what she's doing. <laughs> yeah. She's leading us by the taste buds. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I don't even know if that's the proper title, no, that but works. I think it's sour cream and chili. I know the bag you mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you have any in the house? I can, can we visualize get some right it. Now? Do you have any? Well, let's, let's, <laughs> go go dig, let's go Are dig through the cupboards chips? there yeah. together. Don't hold out on me. So Back time. Okay, so... I dub the Lawrence, a.k.a. Larry the Lion. Is that going to stick? It is. It's, it's sticking. Stuck. It's stuck. It's, it's on tape. We better put say. a picture up of yes. Larry. In- this is the the lion head mascot in Mike's recording studio for those who, well, of course, they can't see. So I'm going to get a picture, actually. Yeah. As soon as we're done here, I'm going to get a picture pointing this way yeah. so that Larry yeah. is in it as well. Well, we're honored, Nancy, and uh, let's do it again soon. I don't want to stop. <laughs> so funny. We'll guys. keep chatting after. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was sweet. Another great chat. Thanks, Nancy. I feel good. Yeah, you should. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we head out tomorrow to Nova Scotia Music Week in Sydney. And I play tomorrow night, uh, Steel City Tavern downtown. Just like a hundred or two hundred bands playing throughout the weekend. I can't it's remember. It's gonna be a big weekend. I'm excited. There, this is like everybody comes together and just celebrates one another. And I'm up for two awards. Yeah. What are the awards? Entertainer of the year yeah. and rock album of the year. Amazing. You would keep me entertained every day. I try my best. <laughs> Well, my next thing is I'm going to be doing a home studio art show on Sunday, November 20th. Uh, And then I'm going to follow up with a virtual show. So if you don't get a chance to make it out on that Sunday or you live outside of HRM or can't make it, then you'll still have a chance to grab some holiday goodies. So I'm excited to see people and spread that out there. 
Thanks so much for tuning in, friends. Uh, we would love if you can subscribe and uh, give us a rating and review online. It really helps us. And the biggest thing is just uh, if you like what we're saying, just tell a friend, someone who you think might enjoy it. Word of mouth, still the best way to get out there, I think. Word of mouth never goes out of style. Yeah. So yeah, tell tell a friend if you like what's going on. Send them send them a link to us and uh, and shoot us a message if you have any questions. We love to hear from you. Thanks, friends. Woo.